John chapter 13. If you're visiting with us or if you're new around here, we welcome you to our Sunday morning series through the gospel according to John. And we're just going verse by verse through this great account, which John has made clear. He wrote it so that people would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you might have eternal life. And thankfully, we have seen some people come to know Christ through this series. And I pray that many, many more will come to know Christ as we preach the Word of God here. I really don't understand it all, but God is pleased by the foolishness of preaching to save them which believe, and um, that's just the way He's chosen it. And, and listen, because God has chosen that method, your place is to be at church when the Word of God's being preached. Amen. Amen. By saying, no, thank you, you're saying to God, your methods are not best. And so we need church in our life. And uh, anyway, I'm glad you're here this morning, and uh, I'm glad some people got shuffled around. Seats are being taken. That's a wonderful problem to have. You know something's up when the Elmores are at the front. And their children are in the back. And uh, Sam, I don't know, brother. Um, did Brock take your seat back there? He's in the very back corner. And uh, Brock's found a place to hide out back there. But brother, I'm shooting this message right back there. And uh, I'm glad you're here, brother. Uh, he won't be with us too much longer. He'll be finishing his military career and, and going back to where you came from, right? Amen. So I'm so glad that you've chosen to be with us during your tour here and um, I, I hope our church is a haven for a lot of military folks as they pass through. And uh, having been one, I understand the importance of that in life. And so uh, we appreciate all of you military that are with us. All right. Let's go to John chapter 3 here. Let's read verses 18 through 30. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scriptures may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked around on, on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. When he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. So over the last two weeks, we've covered the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet in these earlier verses, verses 3 through 17. And we won't take the time to recap all of that, but uh, Jesus left us an example of humble servitude. We saw how Jesus took their filthiness unto himself as he girded himself with the towel, wiped their feet, 
a picture of Jesus taking our sin uh, upon him. When he was on the cross, he took our sin upon himself. Amen. And he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so it's a picture of that, but it's really more than that because it's a picture of after we're saved, we still have to have our sins forgiven because we still sin after salvation. None of us are perfect in here. And, uh, and though I hope we're all striving to not be uh, habitual sinners, I, I hope that uh, uh, we're all striving for holiness. But when we have sin in our life, we ought to confess that. Somebody said it this way, you keep short accounts with God. And so I recommend you get up in the day, you ask God to not lead you into temptation. At the end of the day, if you've committed sin, you need to confess that sin. Amen. You need to be cleansed every day. Get your feet clean. It was a nighttime thing in those days. And, and so um, anyway, Jesus here was telling them, look, if you want to partake at my table, you're going to have to have your sins cleansed. You're going to have to have your feet clean. And really, this is good timing because we're celebrating the Lord's Supper next week. And this chapter is the context of the Last Supper. And so I love how the Holy Spirit puts all that together. But Jesus essentially said to Peter, I don't need to cleanse you all over again because he that has been washed is clean every whit. Uh, Meaning, once you're saved, you're saved. Hallelujah. That's where we should all take a lap because we don't deserve it. And yet God is so, we didn't deserve salvation to begin with, much less to keep it. Amen. And so he saves us. He keeps us. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And uh, only your feet need to be washed, if I'll put it that way, from the filth that you'll pick up from walking around in this world below. And Jesus said, Peter, if I can't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Not only was this act instructive of how we need to be clean before we partake of the Lord's table, but it's also instructive of how we need to serve one another. No one is greater than another in here, right? The, what do they say? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so if our Lord and Master would humble himself to wash his disciples' feet, then we can certainly humble ourselves and serve one another, right? We should be able to do that. Um, and so it's a picture of us in our service. And the closing thought from last week was verse 17, where if you'll serve one another, if you'll do these things, the Bible says you'll be blessed, happy, will you be? Uh, And so there's blessings associated when we live in humble servitude. And I believe the reason why is because when we serve one another with humility, we are keeping the focus where it belongs. If we humble ourselves, it's a constant reminder that there's someone greater than us, right? Uh, That we serve somebody higher, someone greater. And, And it also reminds us that Christ came not to be ministered to but to minister to others, right? And so uh, we have to remember that, that uh, that's what we ought to do. Well, amen. Let's begin in verse 18 today. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me have lifted up his heel against me. You ever just put yourself in the scriptures and and you try to picture what's taking place and watching this unfold? I mean, just imagine... Here's 12 men along with Jesus Christ, and they've been with him for three and a half years. I mean, they know each other. And Jesus here, here's here's the men that have walked with him, left all, walked with him, and Jesus knows that in their midst, there's one that's going to betray him. Isn't that a thought? 
And so he, he knows that there's a betrayer among them. And he, he's saying that they may be clean outwardly, but there's one here that's not clean inwardly. This ties back to verses 10 and 11 there, uh, where Jesus said, He that is washed needeth not to save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. He says, And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. And so Jesus here again at the beginning of verse 18, he's, he's letting us know, uh, not all of you are clean. And we know, we know he's speaking of Judas Iscariot, but this verse is very important to understand. And so I want to just kind of dig in here for just a minute. And uh, there's going to be a lot of little sermonettes within the sermon today. Uh, we could really stay right here in these verses for a long time. And, and you know that we're capable of that. But I'm trying to keep this thing going. And so instead of getting stuck here for months, I'll just kind of give you some little sermonettes here as we go. Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen. Many are using that phrase to say that Jesus has in fact chosen some to hell, some to heaven. That Jesus has chosen some that would be saved and others that would remain lost. Jesus said, I know whom I've chosen. So the question is, does this verse teach that some are chosen to be eternally damned and some are saved to be eternally blessed? Is it telling us that we have no hope in the matter, that we have no say, that what's done is done and it really doesn't matter if we witness. And, and frankly, what would it matter if we preach? What would it matter if we try to live holy? If it doesn't make a difference, why do we do what we do? If Jesus, if, if God already has this all planned out, then what are we doing here? Why are we told to go into all the world and preach the gospel? And so what is this telling us here? Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen. I believe all verses that are used to teach a false Calvinistic doctrine are very easily refuted by the context of the verse. Now, I'll admit to you, this one's a little more subtle, but the context will explain it all. I also know this, scriptures never contradict scripture. In other words, you're not going to read over in Genesis something that's going to contradict something over in Leviticus. Uh, whatever book. It doesn't contradict each other. And so without there being contradictions, if we, know a, if we know a principle, if we know a truth, nothing should contradict that in Scripture. And I'm talking about stuff that's black and white that we know that we know because it's stated so very clearly for us. Um, and so the Bible is very clear that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's clear. Therefore, there should be no other portion of Scripture which would contradict that. That makes sense? And so since we know that, what is this telling us here? If a man's teaching, by the way, if it tries to explain away the truth that God is not willing that any should perish then it has to be rejected as error because it's contradictory right at, right at the beginning. And so no matter how well they can explain their position, no matter how well they can twist the Scriptures, it doesn't make it true. There's a guy on the radio. He's known to be a famous Calvinist. He, he died recently. 
um, he's actually a good preacher as far as speaking goes. And uh, I don't care how convincing the argument is, if it contradicts another area of Scripture, it's not true. So what did Jesus mean? I know whom I have chosen. Well, we've already established that in the first part of that verse, not all of them are clean. So when he's talking about chosen, what is he saying? Um, Well, this is my opinion, but let's go back to context. Now, stay with me through this. What is Jesus, or who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the 12 disciples. Isn't that right? Jesus says to these 12 men in John 6, verses 70 and 71, he said this, Have not I chosen you 12, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was that should betray him, being one of the 12. So Jesus said over there in John chapter 6, Uh, I know that I've chosen you 12, your chosen men. They were chosen for what? Um, They could not, listen, this is so important. They could not have been chosen to eternal life or eternal damnation. He says, I know whom I have chosen. One of you is a devil. Therefore, God, we cannot say that God is up there choosing ahead of time who's going to inherit heaven because he said, I've chosen you all, but one of you ain't making it. One of you is a devil. One of you is going to betray me. What were they chosen for? Because he said they were chosen. They're chosen to be the 12 apostles. Here's what I believe Jesus is saying in our text, in context. I know whom I have chosen. I know the 12 men that I've selected. Now, why would Jesus feel the need to say this? Because he had just said, Ye are clean, but not all. That really didn't make sense in the minds of those 12 men who had followed him for three and a half years. Now, I guarantee you it made sense in the mind of one of those men. Judas Iscariot, he knew. But the rest, it didn't make sense. And so Jesus says again here to start this verse, he says, I speak not of you all. But wait a minute, guys. Before you think this is strange... I'm well aware of who I have chosen. I chose all 12 of you. Now look at verse 19. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. He's he's saying, I'm telling you, I know whom I have chosen. I know the 12 of you. I know who I selected. But I also know this. One of you is a devil. And then he's telling his disciples this, but get this, it doesn't diminish who I am. It doesn't mean I don't know what I'm doing. It doesn't mean that I selected incorrectly. It doesn't mean that I made a mistake. He says, I know whom I have chosen. I know the 12 men that I have chosen to walk with me for these last three and a half years. I know them. I know their heart. One of you is a devil. And the reason I'm telling you this ahead of time is because of this. Afterwards, when you realize I've been betrayed by one of those from our midst, you're going to be tempted to conclude in your heart and in your mind, did this man really know all things? Because why would he choose someone who had a devil? That's not who I'd want to choose to be in the church. Now, we've had some. And so anyway, uh, do you understand what Jesus is saying here? 
He's saying, I know who I'm chosen. I know that one of them is going to betray me, but it doesn't diminish my authority. It doesn't diminish who I am. It doesn't diminish that I know all things. I'm telling you beforehand because after it comes to pass, you're going to believe that I'm him, that I am the one, that I know what I'm talking about, that I know all things, that I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end, and I know what's going on. And that's all it's saying here in context. It's not saying that he's chosen some for hell and some for heaven. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's, he's talking about a credibility issue with himself, with the disciples, although he didn't owe him, them that. Uh, but certainly it helps. So he's just telling them to encourage his true disciples that he is, in fact, the Christ, that I know what I'm talking about. So I hope that made sense. So why did all this go down this way then? Well, verse 18 says, that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me have lifted up his heel against me. So it was prophesied in the Psalm, uh, Psalms that there was going to be this event. It was written in the scriptures. Uh, it just happens to be written in the Psalms. And so um, it had to take place because God's word has to be true. Does that make sense? And so it had to come to pass. Now, I understand one would look at that and say, see, that proves that some are predestined for this and predestined for that. And to that, I would say this, never, never confuse God's foreknowledge with predestination. God knows all things. He doesn't force you to get saved. He doesn't force you to reject him. He's made every provision for you to be saved. He himself came and bled in our place. And so don't confuse foreknowledge to mean that God has some going to hell from the creation of the world and some are going to heaven. Did God know that this was going to happen? Yes. Does God know whether or not you'll accept or reject his son? Yes. But that doesn't mean God was unwilling that Judas Iscariot should be saved. And it doesn't mean God doesn't care about your soul. He wants you to be saved but he's not going to force you to repent. As Jesus stated, this had to happen because the scriptures foretold of it. And not one jot, not one tittle of the word of God was going to fall to the ground. It was all going to be fulfilled. Psalm 41.9 says, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, he hath lifted up his heel against me. All the way back in Psalms, it was prophesied that this day was going to come. We could preach an entire sermon right there on that verse, but nothing hurts more than when a close friend stabs us in the back. In Psalm 41.9, he's called a familiar friend. That's somebody that we've grown to trust. That's somebody that we respect, and it's somebody that we feel safe around. There are those who will eat at our table regularly will enjoy our sustenance and yet they'll turn their backs on us. Amen. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? And I mean a familiar friend. Has there been one who has eaten at your table and fellowship with you but they still betrayed you? Well, then you're in good company today. Because it happened to our Lord. And I can tell you this. If you're going to work for the Lord in any capacity. It's going to happen to you at some point. That's ministry. 
there will be someone that you've invested your life in. There'll be those that you've not had supper with your family in order that you might go and minister in their time of need. There will be those who you have invested in and poured your life in and you fed them. You fed them physically. You fed them spiritually and they'll walk away from you. And it leaves you confused. Listen, it's going to happen, but you just stay in there. Verse 21, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. So if there was any doubt from verse 18 that there was a betrayal about to happen, Jesus makes it absolutely clear right here. There is one present among them which was going to betray him. And verse 22 says, Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. When Jesus revealed that it would be one of the twelve which would betray him, the disciples look around on each other, and they were doubting of who Jesus spoke of. Now that word doubting means to be at a loss. They're perplexed. What is Jesus talking about? This is another reason why Jesus had to say, I know whom I've chosen. Because I know it's going to confuse you. But uh, they're at a loss here of what's going on. And when we compare the other gospel accounts of this particular portion, we read that the disciples began to inquire among themselves who it should be that would do this thing. And they began to ask the Lord, Lord, is it I? And and they all started to ask. Verse 23 says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now remember, they didn't eat at tables with chairs like we do in our Western culture. Um, their tables were low to the ground and they would sit on the ground on some sort of pillow or something and they would recline on the table. And so uh, you still see that a lot overseas. I know the first time we went to our land uh, lord's uh, house in Korea, they spoke Hangul and we spoke American and English. What do we speak over here? And, uh, and, and I'm telling you what, it was the goofiest thing because they were communicating us and we were talking. And we were just, well, I mean, we needed the gift of tongues right then. And uh, <laughs> anyway... Uh, they had a little table there on the floor, and that's where you sat and ate. And so it's kind of the same thing. And, and so we still see that a lot in the East, but they would sit on the ground. So you need to get that Leonardo da Vinci painting out of your head of the Last Supper where it looks like, you know, Jesus said, all right, disciples, y'all get on this side of the table. Let's get a photo. All right, everybody get over here. Ready? Uh, that's not what happened. Amen. Not to mention, they all look like these European dudes. And so, um, just get that picture out of your head. That's not how it went down. Um, it was nothing like that. And I would tell you, if God would be pleased, we could preach up a storm right here on what's happening with John and Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. Here's one that is so close to the Lord that he's reclining in the Lord. He can hear the heartbeat. Christ, the heartbeat of heaven. He can feel the breath of God. Can you imagine being that close with the Lord? You see, John was one who didn't sit where the others sat. There's 12. There's one that's a devil. There's three that go pretty close. Peter, James, and John. 
But there's one that says, I'm going to sit where others don't sit. He was so close with the Lord that when he wrote of himself, he said, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. If only we could get a hold of this. If we would just recline upon Christ. If we only had the assurance that we knew that we were the disciple loved by Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that's the problem with a lot of people. Isn't that right, Adrian? I don't know if God's real. I don't know if he loves me. I don't know. I'm doubting the whole thing. See, the problem is people get to that point and say, I don't know if God's real. I don't know if he's real. And I don't know if he loves me. It's because there's one over here. And, and you say, how come you know? How can you know? Because that one's saying, I'm going to sit where nobody else will sit. I'm going to get right up by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to lean upon him. I'm going to hear his heartbeat. I'm going to feel his breath. And I'm going to know that he loves me. And everybody else is out here just kind of tiptoeing on the edge of Babylon, out here on the edge of Egypt, out here with one foot on the world, and they wonder why in God's name they can't get victory, they don't have peace, they don't know that God loves them, they don't know there's a God in heaven, even though they've been in church for years, and now all of a sudden they dropped out, and it's because they stopped sitting where the Lord Jesus Christ is, and they started to do their own thing. Glory. I guess we could preach up a storm there. But listen, I'm telling you, that's the problem with people. You need to sit where others won't sit. And I'll tell you this, your Christianity will mean so much more to you than it ever has. Look at verses 24 and 25. Uh, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Now who else would we expect to want to know who it is? Peter, right? Uh, so, you know, Peter, he's back there chilling. And uh, they're all asking who. And Peter's like, ask him. <laughs> Apparently, John knew what he was talking about because he, he asked. Because it just says he beckons with his hand. And, uh, and so, anyway, uh, Peter would be the one to do that and, and wants to know who's going to betray him. But there might be a message right there the Holy Spirit just gave me because I didn't think about it until right now. But isn't it sad that the one who was beckoning who is it that's going to betray him is the very one that's going to curse and cuss that he didn't know him. Look at Jesus' response in verse 26. He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, Jesus is making it clear who it is. Right? Um, it's about as clear as you can get. But we're going to see in a moment the disciples still don't get it, at least some of them. <laughs> now verse 27. And after the sop, Satan entered into him, then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Again, there's just a lot here, man. I, we could preach a lot of messages from all this, but this is probably a study for another time. But there's a very inter interesting parallel here between Judah and Judas. Perhaps the greatest type of Christ in our Old Testament was Joseph. Do you remember what happened to Joseph? He was betrayed by his own. He was betrayed by his brothers. Those of his own household. Those who ate at the same table. They conspired against him and they lifted up their heel against Christ or against Joseph. And guess which brother said unto the other brethren, What profit is it 
if we slay our brother and conceal his blood. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. It was Judah. Judah said, let's make profit from this. He came up with the idea and Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. And now in our text, here's a man named Judas, which is another way of saying Judah. Jesus had come unto his own, but his own received him not. And there was one in particular that would sit at his table, but he would lift up his heel against him anyway. And then he goes unto his true brethren, the chief priest, and he covenants with them to sell Jesus into their hands for 30 pieces of silver. Now, isn't that amazing? Judas is a representation of the house of Judah's rejection of Christ. And this was foreshadowed all the way back there in Genesis. And there's a lot more we could get into there, but we'll save that for another time. Judas made his decision and he sided with Satan. Now, understand this took place after Judas had rejected Christ in his heart. He had already gone to the chief priest. He had already worked out the deal. This was already in motion. He was seeking opportunity to betray Christ. The scripture makes that clear. And so uh, just need to know that. And, and when the right opportunity presented itself, Satan enters Judas Iscariot and the outward betrayal is now in motion. And from a passage like this, inevitably, there are two questions which arise. Can demons really indwell a physical body? And the answer is yes. And two, can demons take possession of a blood-bought believer of Christ? And the answer is no. However, believers can be influenced by demons. We may not be possessed, but we can be oppressed. When we got saved, the Holy Spirit moved in. I don't know any demon stronger than the Holy Spirit. That's going to say, excuse me, Holy Spirit, I need to get in there for a little while. So a blood-bought believer is not going to be possessed by demons. But we can be influenced. Like I said, we can be oppressed. There are examples in the Bible um, of these, uh, both sides of it. As a believer would yield themselves to the flesh, they'll become more and more influenced by the enemy. And um, anyway, but I want you to get this here in this verse. I want you to understand how powerful our Lord is. He's in total control of all that is taking place. He tells Judas, who is now under the control of Satan, right? Satan has entered Judas. And I love the way the Bible puts this in the order that it does. And so Satan, having entered Judas Iscariot, Jesus looks at Judas and essentially is looking at Satan. Are you following my line of thinking? And so he's looking at the devil and he says, that thou doest, do quickly. You see how powerful our Lord is. We give way too much credit to Satan. He had to command Satan what to go do. He said, what you're doing, go do it quickly. And I want to tell you this morning, God is always in complete control. Satan isn't running around out there disrupting God's plan, taking God by surprise, and God up there going, man, I wish that stinking devil would just quit running around so I could keep everything online. He knows exactly what's going on. Somebody said, has it ever occurred to you? Nothing ever occurs to God. 
Satan does nothing but what God says is permissible. I want you to understand this because crucifixion wasn't plan B. It wasn't some clever spinning of the disciples to say, how are we going to explain away the fact that our leader has just been crucified? I know, we'll say that he came to die for our sins. No. It was foreordained. It was known from the beginning, from the foundation of the world. Christ is the Lamb slain. Every aspect of the crucifixion is in perfect agreement with God's plan for redemption from the foundation. Verse 28 says, Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. If it wasn't so serious, this would almost be humorous. Because think about how this unfolds. The disciples just asked Jesus, Who is it? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus replies in verse 28, He that I shall give the sock to. Is everybody watching me? And he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And it's clear when you read the other gospel accounts that Jesus says this to them all. No one, or excuse me, one would think that this was as clear as Jesus could be in answering their question. And in Matthew's account, it's even recorded, when Judas asked Jesus, Master, is it I? Jesus says unto him, Thou hast said. Despite Jesus being absolutely clear about who the betrayer was among them, some are still missing it. So what do they think Jesus is up to? Look at verse 29. Now, are you picturing what's just happened? Verse 29. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. The one that I give the sop to. Master, is it I? Thou hast said. There goes Judas. You know, I bet he's going out there to buy some bread. (laughs) He's probably giving something to the poor. It's almost humorous how oblivious some of them are. And, And I'm building up to a point here at the very end. I know we're running out of time, so stay with me. And in verse 30, Jesus departs to betray Jesus. Let me give you the main emphasis here. And if you've tuned me out, listen up. I want your attention for the last few moments here. I won't be long. Why were some of the disciples still confused about who Judas Iscariot really was? I want you to consider who Judas was outwardly. Who who was this man? He was called a disciple of Christ. He was called an apostle of Christ. He is one who would have made a profession of faith that Jesus was the Messiah. He is one that would have made his profession of faith public by being baptized. He walked with our Lord and with the other eleven faithfully for three and a half years. He served in this group as the treasurer. He was an eyewitness of the miracles that our Lord performed. He saw Jesus' power. He audibly heard the Word of God being preached by the Word of God. He had His feet washed by the Lord. He even partook of the Lord's Supper. Everything externally identified this man as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus was his personal Lord and Savior. Let me put it to you this way. Outwardly, this man was in good standing within the church. He was faithful to Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and the prayer meetings. He dressed the part. He talked the part. He walked the part. He was identified as a follower of Christ by all those around him. He called Jesus his master. He walked about, uh, as he walked about, he would have been identified as one of them. And our text is clear that he so convincingly seemed like a true follower of Christ that even some of the disciples had no clue what Judas was up to that night. He had the illusion of godly character. He had the money bag. He learned to use the things of God for his own personal gain. Maybe you're one today who looks the part. And you talk the part. And you walk the part. And you've even unworthily eaten at the Lord's table. Maybe you've done so for years. And those around you take you as a true follower of Christ. But deep down, you know you're an imposter. You've learned how to get personal gain from the things of God without ever being a child of God. Maybe you attend because it's gain for you to just keep peace in the home and with your friends. It makes your wife happy. It makes your husband happy. It makes your children happy or it makes your parents happy. It makes your friends happy. And so you just look the part so that nobody will pry. And rather than getting real with God, you just play the part so everyone will just kind of leave you alone. Maybe it's helped you somehow professionally because you feel you are benefited by looking like a godly member of the community. But you've never really gotten your heart right with God. Maybe it eases your conscience to know you've checked your religious box off today. And somehow that little tiny bit of effort is gained to you. But you know you're really only fooling yourself. And one day you're going to stand before God. And he'll be forced to profess unto you, I never knew you. Is there any here today who are like that? You're like Judas Iscariot. You're a good church member. But you've never given your heart to Christ. You've been baptized. You've made your profession of faith. You attend, you put some money in the plate, but you're not saved. And you're on your way to hell for still rejecting Christ. You're not fooling God. Let's pray. Almighty Father, I ask you now to please draw that one who is pretending today We won't embarrass them. We won't chide them. But we will rejoice with them that they want to get their heart right with you. So, Father, if there's any who need to be saved this morning, please, God, let it be now. Maybe there's some church folks here that just know they need to be closer like John was. 
May they do business with you, please. We ask it for Christ's sake because he's worthy. Amen.